Good morning. How are we? Well, I heard some bah humbugs out there earlier, and uh, shame on you. That's all I have to say. Uh, you know, Christmas is, we know this, okay? But it's, it's about the gospel. It, everything that um, we celebrate in Christmas is a fulfilled prophecy. You know, it, it, everything that we see in Christ was presented to us from the beginning. So when Adam and Eve fell and plunged themselves and creation and humanity into sin, uh, the, the very first thing God did was to declare that he had a solution. And he told them that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so from that time until Jesus was born, all we had was uh, prophecy and, and hope and expectation that the person that God had declared was going to solve our sin issue was coming. And so for 4,000 years, we had this kind of hopeful expectation that somebody, a Messiah, a Savior is going to be born who's going to take away our sins, somehow going to change this whole, you know, sin scenario that we caught, you know, got caught up in. And then you had, um, finally, the birth of the Savior. So everything about Christmas is celebrating and remembering and honoring and exalting God's solution for our sin problem. So we get caught up in the presents and the family get-togethers and the, you know, the lights and the trees and all that stuff. And that's, all that stuff is fine and we enjoy and, and hopefully it adds a little bit of something to our, really, our faith. But, I mean, that stuff is just a reflection of what is supposed to be happening, which is that our hearts are rejoicing that God has done something that has changed not just our lives, but has changed the very fabric of the world and the purpose and the destiny and the destination of creation, of humanity, that he brought forward a savior. And so we're kind of, we're getting ready. This is what we call Advent. Advent means um, the coming of Christ. It means the arrival of God's Savior. And so all these, the four weeks that precede uh, Christmas are called Advent because we're kind of getting ready for that. And, and I joke about that because we talk about, oh, the, we're getting ready for the arrival of Jesus. Well, he came 2,000 years ago. So we're, we're celebrating, we're remembering that. Um, but in doing that, here's something that's interesting um, whether or not you've noticed this, um, different traditions do it differently. A lot of the time in our church, we, we don't get too caught up in like the liturgical order of things. Um, and so we might not really celebrate all the different aspects of Advent the way that sometimes we had in the past or some churches do. But a lot of the time there will be a message, I don't know if you've noticed this, about John the Baptist. During Christmas, do you realize that? You're like, what's going on there? Eric, what's going on there? <laughs> um, and the deal is that in the prophecy of the Messiah, there was also prophecy of the one who would precede the Messiah, who would prepare the way for him, which was John the Baptist. And so he has an important role in getting us ready for the gift of Jesus, what he did, what, who he was, and what he said, his message, 
and, and all that it meant uh, has something to do with how we get ready to celebrate salvation. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look to uh, Scripture to see what the message is from John or about John that gets us ready for Jesus, okay? So let's stand as we read God's Word this morning. We're in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is uh, um, Mark's gospel is, is very much an immediate kind of um, message of here's what happened and boom, you're right in the middle of the story. Um, and so what he says here, Mark 1, says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared. So it's interesting. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for their forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you for your word, uh, for the message of John, the messenger that was John, um, who, who had a divine purpose, who had a divine call, a divine plan uh, that you had proclaimed and declared and prophesied uh, long before his arrival. Um, we know that you know all things, that you are in control. You understand uh, everything about what's going on right now in our lives, in our world, in our country. Uh, you are still in control. Uh, Lord, we, we look to the things that are happening around us, and uh, it's concerning, but we know that you're still a God who is, is at work powerfully. Lord, you're moving to ch change things. You have the ability to, to grab a heart and, and, and remake it in your image to, to save anyone at any time, uh, Lord, that you, you made that possible through your son Jesus, that there's a simple step of faith that we can take to just declare yes to your invitation. We, we receive it and, and something changes. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for uh, the word that John gave too that was um, preparing people for your presence to get ready to see ourselves clearly as those in need. And Lord, I, I don't know, maybe that's the biggest issue that we have. Uh, people need to know and understand that how much they need you. You're worthy of our worship. Uh, you are worth our life. And you are desperately needed. And so come and, and reveal yourself, your plan, your purpose, your word, your will. Today, through... Um, all that is said and done here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, one of the things that uh, uh, I read as I was studying about John was that he, somebody said he is the most significant uh, theological, now that's, that's a pretty profound statement to make about somebody, that he is the most significant theological, 
uh, theological person in the New Testament besides Jesus himself. And so why is that? And one of the reasons why is because uh, if you look back in uh, history of the, the scriptures, there was 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was 400 years where God was not speaking to his people. Uh, he wasn't proclaiming anything. He wasn't professing anything. He wasn't prophesying anything. They had their scripture and they had their religious practice and they had their temple worship and they had their sacrifices um, but they did not have a prophet among them who was proclaiming anything new for 400 years. And then God breaks the silence. But what was the last thing that he said? In Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, um, the last thing that he says is chapter 4, verse 5 of Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction or with a curse. And so what's happening is that God is declaring the next thing that I'm going to do before the Messiah comes is I'm going to send somebody who is going to prepare you for his ministry. That's, that's what he had said. And in their minds, in the Jewish people's minds, you have to understand that there were two people in the Old Testament that went to heaven without dying, okay? Enoch walked with the Lord and was no more, so we believe. He went to heaven. Uh, he was basically what we call raptured. Um, he went to heaven without having to experience death directly to, to heaven, translated. And the other one was Elijah. He went directly to heaven without dying. And so in the Jewish people's minds, you have to understand, the idea was, the possibility was, Elijah could return to the earth and continue his ministry, right? He, he hadn't died. So he, could, he wouldn't be resurrected. He wouldn't be reincarnated. He would just physically come back and continue to pick up where he left off and prepare the way for the Lord. And so there was this kind of expectation that something like that might happen. Somebody like Elijah, maybe even Elijah himself, was going to come and he was going to declare something. He was going to preach a message. He was going to get ready for the Messiah, and they're hopefully and, you know, expectantly waiting for something to happen. So a lot of people in Jesus' day at that time in the first century, they were just kind of waiting for something to happen. 400 years have gone by. A lot has happened in that time. Okay, the, the Greeks came in and they conquered, and the Romans came in and they overthrew, and they, they overtook Israel. They were kind of under that oppression, and they're waiting for something to happen. They're frustrated because they want to be free and they believe that, that God is going to do something miraculous and powerful and they're just kind of scratching their head waiting for something to happen. And finally, Zechariah is in the temple and he is uh, offering incense. Now, some of you know what the, the offering of incense means in Jewish worship. What does it mean? What does it represent? You failed terribly. <laughs> I caught you off guard. Somebody knows. Prayer. Because they were at 8 o'clock service. Of course, they said it at 8 o'clock before I prompted them. So we got some Bible students here. So what happens is in, in temple worship, there were different aspects of how they would, you know, give the sacrifice and how they would offer different things. And one of the things that they would do is that they would offer incense. And the incense was representative of the prayers of the people before. God. It was the pleasing aroma of their prayers. 
and it symbolized that. And so Zechariah is in the temple. He is um, on this uh, lottery system, is kind of how it worked, where sometimes your name would get called up and then you would go and you would serve. And it would happen just randomly. So he got called up and he's serving in the temple, offering the prayers, offering the incense that represents the prayers. And probably he's slipping in his own prayer, right? You have this opportunity. You're going to be in the temple. You're going to be offering the incense. And yes, Lord, all the prayers of the people and all the things that they want and things they're asking for you to do. And and God, also, there's this other little thing over here I'd kind of like for you to do for me if it's not too much trouble. Can you imagine him maybe doing that? And so Zechariah and his wife, um, they were, it says... In Luke, if you go over to the first chapter of Luke, they were um, getting along in years. So what that means, literally, is that a priest could only serve in the temple from the age of 30 to the age of 50. And then they were done. They had to retire. So he's still serving in the temple. So what does that mean? It means he's not 50 years old yet. How many of you in your 40s think that this is kind of an unkind thing for the Scripture to say he, that they were getting along in years when he's in his 40s? Probably. We think that they're in their 40s. Maybe they're in their 30s. How does that make you feel? So what, what has happened is probably they're in their mid to maybe late 40s. They've been married for 25 years or so, never had a child. And uh, so he's praying along with all the prayers of the people. He's also praying, God, what, I mean, this is our last chance, <laughs> right? I mean, we still, still got a chance, maybe, that we could still have a baby. I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility, even though it is unlike he does this. He prays, and then Gabriel shows up and says, so it makes sense. He's offering the prayers of the people. He's offering incense. But also he says, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. So God has broken his silence for 400 years through Gabriel to Zechariah to declare this thing is happening. And it is the thing that God had declared last in the Old Testament, that he would send someone in the power and in the, in the ministry of Elijah and here he is. This is going to be John the Baptist. It says, uh, you'll have great joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. And it's just going to be, it's not just going to be good for you and your wife, which is, that's a huge thing. That's obviously, you know, you're getting along in years. <laughs> you're in your 40s. So uh, this is going to be a wonderful thing. But it reflects uh, all kinds of Old Testament prophecies. You have the birth of Isaac and both Ishmael, Abraham's two sons, okay, that they were both prophesied by an angel that they would come. And Abraham and Sarah were both much older than Zechariah and Elizabeth when they were having their babies. But what happened here is that you have uh, an angel who only declares like five times in Scripture that somebody's going to be born. You have Ishmael and Isaac, and you have Samson. An angel comes and declares that he's going to be born. And then you have John the Baptist, and then you just have one other, which is Jesus. And so you have this unique, rare thing that an angel is declaring, a prophesying or, or proclaiming that you're going to have a child. And then 
Zechariah, he has all these other reflections of things that are happening in Scripture because we have the, the old age issue. You have the angel issue. You have the priest in the temple, which is like Eli um, and Hannah in the temple when Samuel was declared that he was going to be born. And then you have the issue of he's going to be somebody who doesn't drink strong drink. He's not going to ever take alcohol, kind of like what the angels told uh, Samson's parents. And, and you have all these kind of factors involved in, in John the Baptist, and it parallels Jesus himself. Because the same angel, Gabriel, who tells Zechariah that he's going to have a child, is going to go six months later and tell Mary that she's going to have a miraculous birth. And then, here's what's happening, is there's this time clock that's just started ticking, that the birth of, of John the Baptist sets the pattern for what's going to happen to not only John the Baptist and the nation of Israel, but Jesus and the rest of their ministry together. So he's this really important person that God begins to declare this is going to happen. And so Zechariah, okay, he's in the temple offering the incense and he sees an angel. And I don't know what Gabriel looks like. What do you think? He looks normal? He's probably pretty fantastic, I would think. Maybe not. Maybe he's in rags. I don't know. But Zechariah, what does he do? Does he fall down and like, yes? He's like, well, how do I know for sure? I mean, you know, I got an angel talking to me in the temple while I'm offering the incense, and you just told me the prayers are being heard. But how do I really know? And so I want a sign of some kind. And what was the old redneck thing, here's your sign award? <laughs> it's kind of like that. He's like, all right, here's your sign. You can't talk until John's born. How's that? Sound good? That's what you get. So <laughs> here's what I, I want to say. When you got enough of what God's telling you, don't ask for a sign. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you got enough. And, and so he's telling you what you should do. It's clear. It's obvious. Just do it. Just trust him. Just, just allow for God to have a little bit of space to, to kind of manage the details. We're, we're, we're constantly asking for signs for stuff we know that we ought to be doing. Right? And he's like, well, here's your sign, I guess. You want a sign? It's not always going to be good. <laughs> your sign might be you can't talk for a while. You get, you get a bad sign. I don't want a bad sign, so I'm just going to try to do the thing that God told me to do. Believe that, trust that, and then maybe you don't ask for signs. Okay, I'm sorry. That was just a little bit of a rabbit trail. Zechariah gets this amazing message, and now they're going to have this child. And he's going to come in the power and the authority and the, the ministry of Elijah. And so what does that mean? He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children back to the father and, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord for a people prepared. Here's what is interesting is that John the Baptist's ministry um, is going to start at the age of 30, right? And how do I know that? Mark says clearly, Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. 
John the Baptist was a priest. Zechariah, I mean, it's right there in black and white. Zechariah is in the temple. He is a priest. He is of the line of Aaron. He is not just a Levite who all the Levites of that tribe, they could serve in different ways, but he is an Aaronic priest. He is of the line and lineage of Aaron, and so is Elizabeth, his wife. So John the Baptist is a bona fide priest. Numbers chapter 4 says that a priest will begin their ministry in the temple at age 30, and they will end their ministry in the temple at age 50. So John the Baptist begins his ministry professing, proclaiming um, the gospel. Basically, you need to repent because the Messiah is coming. He has six months because John the Baptist, his birth was declared six months before Jesus. So he has six months to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah that's going to happen. And then in six months, what happens is that Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and he begins his public ministry. And so John the Baptist has a, t- a ticking time clock. He's, you got to get ready. He's coming. We don't have a lot of time here. And I do wonder if we, we've lost a sense of that urgency. We don't, we don't think that it's very urgent. Like, oh, Jesus, he might be coming back at some point. We don't know. Maybe, hopefully, someday before I die. But we're not urgent. John knew that his time was coming. Like, it was, when I turn 30, I have a job to do. And when Jesus turns 30, he's going to pick it up and he's going to carry on. So his job was... Very clearly, as a priest, he's baptizing in the Jordan River. What is he doing? He is cleansing, he is uh, purifying, he is consecrating people. There, he's pr- professing this uh, message, repent, which means, here's what's weird. They were supposed to draw people back to faith in God, but these were people that believed in God. Where's, where's the disconnect? These aren't people that don't believe in God. These are Jewish people who go to the temple, they offer the sacrifices, they listen to the sermons, they sing the songs, and then John's message is, you got to turn your hearts back to the Lord because what, what's going on is your lips give God praise, but your hearts are far from me. And they were being called constantly back to this life of obedience. And so consecration is this. When Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments and he's going to the mountain, Mount Sinai, God told him, you need to make sure that the people are consecrated before they come to the mountain. They need to be get ready for the presence of God. They need to prepare themselves for what's going to happen. They're going to be in the presence of God. And this is what John was doing. He was consecrating. He was purifying the people for the ministry of Jesus that was coming. And here's what we understand is that John's life and ministry precedes Jesus, but it, was, it also is like this miniature kind of model of the Christian life. So we are consecrated in this life, meaning that we are set apart, purified. We are um, for the presence of God in eternity. What that means is this life is dress rehearsal for reality, for real, true, honest, and eternal life forever in the presence of God, without any hindrance, without sin, without any, anything coming between us, without any faults, without any failure, without any, any struggle, 
It's all going to be taken care of, but this is dress rehearsal. This is getting ready. This is preparing us for what's going to come. That's, that's what John was trying to get people to understand about. Here comes Jesus. I'm going to baptize you with water. And that was always just a purification ritual. That the Jewish people did this all the time. They would, they would take cleansing baths constantly for ceremonial purification. John's saying, I'm just going to baptize you with water to kind of get you ready. But there's coming one who, who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit that will change your heart that will change your destiny, that will change your mind, that will give you a new creation, that will be a permanent thing. But here's what I'm saying. They already believed in God, so what really needed to change? And the, the thing that needed to change was their behavior. They were going to the temple, they were singing the songs, they were listening to the sermons, but their life wasn't changing, they weren't doing anything different. They were not acting on what they believed. Does that sound like anything familiar? <laughs> you just think about what, what do we do as Christians in the church? This is what James was talking about in, in his letter. He said, faith without deeds is dead. And he doesn't mean that you have to earn your salvation. Okay, because we know that the, the gospel declares and, and proves consistently that it is by grace through faith that you're saved by no works of your own. You cannot do anything of your own to earn salvation. But what he's saying is that as people who believe, we come into a church setting, into a worship setting, and we listen and we hear and we even agree. My fundamental opinion, you know, is that 90% of us, maybe 85%, agree with what you're hearing as we're preaching the word week to week. You agree with it. it you, you say, yes, that is true, and, and I believe that, and, and I'm in full agreement, and uh, what, what you're saying is the truth. Now, there are people that maybe are sitting there like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't believe that. I'm just here because, you know, somebody invited me, whatever. That does happen. But more or less and probably more, people are in agreement with what we're talking about. The faith that we proclaim of Jesus Christ being the Savior of the world, and you need to receive Him as your Savior to be saved, is a message that most people are saying, yes, I, I agree with that, I believe that. And the problem is not that we don't have people that agree with the, what the Bible says or what we're proclaiming as the gospel. The problem is that we leave here not doing anything different than we did before. We keep doing the same thing over and over and over. We say, yes, I believe and I agree with that, but then we leave and we keep sinning like we did before. Nothing changes. Is that a problem? And it's not that... Oh, I'm getting too preachy. Okay. Sometimes we try, but sometimes we don't try. I guess that's what I'm saying. Sometimes we just come and we think, listen, here's what I, I, I believe. It is good to be in church. This is a good thing. It is helpful. It is encouraging. It is moving you closer in your heart and your mind to a relationship with God. That's a good thing by itself. But there has to be another level of energy and effort and discipline and obedience that we apply to 
what this whole thing is on Sunday morning, which is that from here, now I have to understand there's something I'm supposed to do with my life that's different than I did yesterday. I'm trying to apply the Word of God. I'm trying to apply the the moral that God has and the ethic that He has and the rules that, and the commands and, the, the, and ultimately what we say is the will of God. It's, it's not about rules and commands. It's really about what is God's will for my life? What, what does He want me to do? How does He want me to live? And so the people were coming to John and they were saying, this is fantastic. We love your message. We get baptized. And then they say, what do we do? And he said, here's what you do. Live it out. You don't just feel bad about your sin. Live differently. Be generous. Stop taking what you don't own and don't deserve. Stop being stingy. I mean, a lot of what he was dealing with was people that, that were struggling with greed. A lot of his message to the people was, well, what do I do in this situation? He's like, well, stop being greedy. What do I do in this situation? Well, stop being greedy. Start being generous. Be content. Don't seek to get more than you need. And that was kind of part of the... That might have been what they were dealing with. That not, might not be what you're dealing with or what I'm dealing with. But the reality is, at some point, it's not just about feeling better because I have faith, but it's now taking that faith and moving it into an area of obedience. Okay, God, what do you want me to do? So what John does in his life is... This is so... <laughs> fantastic to see just how he precedes Christ in every way. His message precedes the, the coming of Jesus. So uh, the, the, the ceremonial purification preceded the gospel, and the gospel is going to be, be the thing that changes. But then something else happens is that uh, John says to Jesus when he baptizes him, he says, I need to be baptized by you, but you're coming to me to be baptized. John submits Number one, that Jesus is greater than he is. That he, he knows that. He has his own ministry. He has the spirit and the power of Elijah. He is a prophet. He is all those things. He's been declared by angels. He's, he's, uh, he has been born by a prophetic announcement. He's fulfilling God's call that he is one calling in the desert, prepare their way for the Lord. But he says, whatever I am really doesn't matter that much because I'm pointing to Jesus. That was his whole point. It was, if he could just get people to know who Jesus was, that was all he really wanted. And so when Jesus said, uh, it's proper for us to do this now to fulfill all righteousness, John submitted to that too. Even though he, he wanted to be baptized by Jesus, he's like, well, if this is what you want, this is what you feel is right, then I'll do that too. And he baptized Jesus. And then he says to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Every time he saw Jesus walk by, he's like, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He knew, the Holy Spirit in him knew that Jesus was the one who is the point. And so when his disciples began to leave him and follow Jesus, I think he was applauding that. Like, yes, go. That's the one that we need to be following, not me. And so he says, He must become greater and I must become less. Jesus was baptizing and his disciples were baptizing more people than John. And some people came to John to tell him that. And he says, absolutely. He must become greater. I must become less. And he submitted to Jesus at every step. He is he's the one. And his life is like what our life is supposed to be. 
Like we keep our eyes on him, that what his will is, this is what I want. And that's not about me getting what I want. And here's the part of the application for us in terms of like what church is. We, I don't want to be too critical, but don't you love that? We oftentimes come to church as worship critics. We, we come, how was the music? Uh, did it check the box? Uh, no, not quite. Uh, yeah, I didn't really like this song. I wish we'd have sang that song. The message was, eh, it wasn't exactly what I needed today. What I was really looking for was more about grace, not really so much about the you know, repentance. And so, you know, you're not really talking about something I'm really interested in today. And we have that kind of, and I know, I mean, I've been there many, many times myself. And it's a struggle for me too as a pastor, as a preacher, to Okay, what do people need to hear? How am I going to make sure that they, they not just get something that they need, but that they enjoy? I mean, I know it's hard to believe, but I do think about trying to present a message that you'll actually enjoy. And you think, you got to be careful with that. You, can't, you cannot be a people pleaser. You cannot try to, you know, the Bible says tickle people's ears. You, if you start going down that road too much, what you're going to end up with is a message that's so watered down, it has no meaning, it's not true, because you're, all you're doing is trying to figure out how to get people to like what you're saying. That's not going to work. But we kind of have this issue with church where we do, we think that it's God's responsibility to make me feel a certain way. I go to church to be lifted up. I go to church to feel better. I go to church to be encouraged. I go to church to learn something. I go to church to be improved somehow. I'm going to improve my life. I'm going to get a message that's going to help me to deal with the situation. I'm going to get some, some training or, or discipleship or whatever you want to call it to have a better marriage or be a better parent or be a better worker or be a better person. I'm going to kind of find something that's going to help me and that's not wrong right? I mean, it's not necessarily wrong. But when you have that idea about church, then you've got it flipped upside down. We're not here all about me for God to do something to me for me that it's his responsibility to make me feel a certain way. I'm here to glorify him, to honor him, to lift up his name, to worship, to exalt. It's about keeping him the center and the point and the focus and the that's the issue. And the residual thing, the, the after effect, the, the thing that tends to happen is that I get lifted up because I'm lifting him up. But if I come here trying to be lifted up, I'm going to walk away probably disappointed because I've missed the point of what this whole thing is about. But when we keep it right side up, Two things get to happen. God is honored and we get what we need. Because when we do what he calls us to do, when we honor and we obey and when we follow his will, he's pleased to meet with that. 
and to join that and do something in the middle of that. So John the Baptist kind of shows us that a little bit, but he also has this other thing happen that is much like what you and I understand the Christian life is, which is that later in life or in his ministry, he got disappointed about what Jesus was doing and what Jesus wasn't doing. Uh, There was a point where he did not understand that uh, the gospel wasn't going to be just about how God's going to fix this world. It was going to be how he's going to fix this world spiritually first and then ultimately next. And John couldn't see that. He didn't have the whole picture. He didn't have the whole message. He had his part of it. He had what God had revealed to him. And he had the Holy Spirit in him from birth. I mean, he's leaping in the womb when he hears Mary's voice. Okay, he knows Jesus. But yet he says, he's, he's in jail and he sends his disciples to Jesus. Are you the one or are we supposed to expect somebody else? Because Somewhere along the way, he kind of got a little frustrated that life wasn't going the way that he thought it should. And here's what I'm saying is that as a Christian, here's kind of the pattern that'll tend to happen is that we get real excited about Jesus and saving us and and forgiving our sins. And we're kind of like just overjoyed that God would even love me, right? And then you begin to go out and you're inviting people and you're excited and you're bringing people in and you're left and right. God can change your life. He changed my life. Look what he can do. He can do all these things. And we're getting the message out. And then time goes on, time goes on, and life goes on, and things change, and something happens, and there's a health issue, and then there's a problem in the marriage, and then there's an issue financially, and then there's something, a problem that you're dealing with at work, and there's a struggle and stress in the world, and things kind of just seem like, man, what is going on? Anybody ever been there? God, I thought that things would be different. Like at this point in my life, that things would be a lot better than they are. And they're not really that much better. And sometimes I kind of wonder if they're maybe even worse. And John has the spirit and power of Elijah, but he also has the emotions of Elijah. You remember Elijah? Playing prophets of Baal left and right, just killing 400 of them. And then he leaves, and Jezebel sends him a letter, says, I'm going to kill you. Like, you killed them, I'm going to kill you. And he's like, I'm done. That's it. And he runs away, and he's depressed, and he's like, God, just kill me. I'm the last prophet in the world, and I'm the only one following you. Anybody ever feel that, that way? I'm the only Christian. I'm the only real Christian in the world. He just wants to be done. He doesn't get it. He, he saw part of the picture. He didn't see the whole picture. And we have the same kind of, Jesus says what? He says, blessed is he who doesn't fall away on account of me. Don't, don't stop believing because Jesus didn't do exactly what you wanted him to. Don't give up your faith because your life isn't going exactly where you wanted it to. We're all going to struggle in that area at some point, don't you know? He says, persevere, continue, trust, have faith. He's still working it out. He's got a plan. We don't know all the, the whole plan. We don't know the whole picture. John had as much of it as one person could possibly have, and he still didn't have the whole thing. 
He still didn't get the whole picture, even though he was a prophet, even though he had the Holy Spirit, even though he saw Jesus and Jesus says about John, he says, there is no one born among women greater than John. He bridges the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's a priest. He's a prophet. He is filled with the Holy Spirit before the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost. He has the message of repentance before Jesus. He precedes Jesus in every way. He precedes him in birth. He precedes him in ministry. And then he's, not, he's the least in the kingdom because why? He precedes Jesus in death too. He's going to die before Jesus dies. He's, he's not going to get to see the sacrifice that was ultimately made for the sins of the world. He's not going to get to experience that. The washing of the blood that cleanses the, the world's sin. He's not going to experience that. He gets to go to heaven, but he goes from the Old Testament side, not from the New Testament side. Jesus, go tell John what you see. The gospel is proclaimed. The lame are healed. The dead are raised. Good news is proclaimed to the poor. Go tell John. Don't give up. There's more. But it may not be what you think. It says, Christmas is about this fulfillment of the gospel. And when we do that, when we hear that message, when we see what John does, we understand that John is going to have to believe in something he doesn't see. He's going to have to trust in a sacrifice that hasn't happened yet. And we look back and we trust a sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's something we take by faith. When we have the communion elements, one of the things that we do, one of the things that we say, Scripture declares that we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We proclaim his death until he, what, returns. Well, go ahead and grab your communion cups. Gluten-free is up here, and there's another table in the back. Communion, the Lord's Supper, um, is a declaration of faith. It's a declaration, a proclamation that you have received the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that his death on the cross has been received as your payment, that you've applied his blood to your life by faith. This is what John declares is that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? He said that. He said it multiple times to his disciples. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet somehow he didn't quite grasp what that, it was going to be a literal fulfillment that he would give his life, that a lamb to take away sin was going to have to be slaughtered and its blood poured out and sacrificed and die. I don't think John quite understood that. He knew that Jesus was the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but I, I don't know that he really grasped. The prophecy had been spoken, and Jesus was going to fulfill it. He was going to die on the cross. He's going to fulfill all the old elements, the old sacrifice system, the old Passover 
This is what happens on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He's celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He is uh, telling them he is the Passover lamb. They've already slaughtered a little lamb. They're eating it together. They're celebrating this time. Passover meant that the angel of death would pass over any house that had the blood on its doorpost so that you were safe. It says he's the lamb that's going to take away the sin of the world, that he's going to make you safe when you apply his blood to your life. And so what happens is that all those prophecies were fulfilled. He was born. He died. He rose again. All those things were told us in Scripture that these things would happen. John the Baptist was, was declared, prophesied in the Old Testament that he would come and he would prepare the way for the Lord. What we're proclaiming is not just our salvation, but our hope that he's going to return. We proclaim his death until he returns, as long as it takes. But it could be sooner than later. So by faith, we say, thank you for covering me. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for consecrating me. Thank you for purifying me, using me in this world. I'm looking forward to the next. But in the meantime, use me to do your will. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Take any remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you. Every time we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are in awe of what you would be willing to do for us. Uh, We have declared ourselves your friends, but you died for enemies. You died for those that were far from you. You died for those that did not know you, did not love you. And Lord, we thank you that because of that, because of your grace, because of your mercy, we could become friends. We could declare that we want to be yours, close, renewed in a relationship with you that is permanent, Lord. It's not temporary. It's not subjected to whims. It's not uh, subjected to a, a God who's, who is uh, uh, seeking to have vengeance on us. Lord, you want to bring us close. You want to forgive. You want to heal. You want to protect. You want to draw near. And we thank you for that. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have no fear. No fear of death. No fear of punishment. No fear of of what's to come in the next life, Lord. We have only hope and joy and confidence, Lord, because of your promises. They were all yes in Christ, fulfilled. They were offered to us, Lord. We claim them by simple faith. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. After the meal... They took the cup. And they were 
celebrating and they were declaring the Old Testament um, covenant that they had with God that he had made with them. I mean, this, this Passover meal was a reflection of the, the very beginning of the nation of Israel. Okay? They, they had not really been a nation at that point. They were just a group of, of people in, Israel, in Egypt who were slaves, and God had brought them together and made them a people and given them a, a clear symbol of his relationship with them, which is this meal that they would share, this, this, uh, this Passover sacrifice. And they would drink different cups and they would declare different things about God and about their relationship with God. And Jesus takes that one cup and he says, there's a new covenant. This is a covenant in my blood and it's a permanent thing. And it, for anyone who will receive me as Lord and Savior, they can trust that I will certainly fulfill my end. No fear that God will ever give up on you. He declares his permanent love. He declares his permanent faithfulness. And he says, if you trust Jesus, if you want him, if you receive him, then you take the cup and you say, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink all of it. Lord, we thank you that we're simply declaring, we're simply professing, we're not saying these elements do anything particular of themselves. They're, they're symbols of our faith, but we thank you for that. It's a powerful reminder of who you are, what you've declared, and, and what you've promised, and what you've uh, been able and willing to do. We thank you for John's ministry that gets us ready for the reality of, of Christ, Lord, that we can have a consecration that prepares us for an ultimate reality of salvation. Lord, we, we want to be your people. We want to be your people the way that you want us to be your people. And so we uh, ask for your spirit. Be exalted, be honored, be glorified today in what we do and say and help us to glorify you, not only now, but Lord, help us to be reminded of the truth. Lord, we are your representatives in the world. Help us to live a life that glorifies you. We might be imperfect and we might do the wrong thing and think the wrong things, Lord. Where we need correction, correct us. Where we need help, help us, Lord. Where we need encouragement, encourage us. But God, in all these things, we do pray that you'd be honored. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand as we close and sing together. Um, we're just going to celebrate what God has done. Amen.